Good morning. Good Thank morning. You. I would like to welcome you to our forum this morning on this very, very special occasion, this fifth anniversary of marriage equality for our nation. And we celebrate it in not only the Episcopal Church, but the church world across the country. And uh, we give thanks for that ruling. And so we are delighted this morning to have uh, one of our bishops in this church, uh, Bishop Mary Glasspool, who is the assistant bishop in the Diocese of Central New York. And we are really, really happy to have her uh, speak to us today. Bishop Glasspool was consecrated 10 years ago last month, uh, May of 2010. And uh, she became the second openly gay bishop in our church following Bishop B. Jean Robinson. So she comes to us with that experience. She was suffragan bishop there. She's now assistant bishop. And she served many parishes before that time in the uh, Northeast. And then she went to California and had a great time over there in uh, the Diocese of Los Angeles. And now she is in the Diocese Central New York. And uh, we're going to interview her today to uh, just get her take on what this day, this fifth anniversary means to her. So uh, Bishop uh, Glasspool, welcome to St. Luke's. Uh, we're so glad to have you virtually. Uh, it's great to see you and um, congratulations on going to your second position. It's so wonderful to be in the, in the Diocese of New York. Yeah. Okay. Can I, Horace, I know we didn't, we didn't rehearse this or anything, but I'd love to say, first of all, thank you to you, Horace. And then I'd like to say hi to all the people of St. Luke's and um, especially my friend, Ed Bacon. So hi, Ed. Great, thank you. Well, we are delighted. And we talk about St. Luke's, but because of this uh, blessing uh, in disguise with, with um, virtual church, we are able to open our services to not only the St. Luke's parishioners, but to the people in this nation and worldwide. So we have a large, large uh, community this morning. So excellent, excellent. An evangelistic so, moment for the church. Absolutely, very good, yes. So let's get started. Um, I have a few questions just to ask you and feel free to kind of go where the spirit leads you. Uh, the first question is, so this is, this weekend is the fifth anniversary of marriage equality. And I would just like to know from you, uh, when that support, Supreme Court ruling came down five years ago this weekend, uh, what did it mean for you personally, uh, for our nation and for our church? Well, um, first, I'll never forget the day the Supreme Court ruling came down. We were at General Convention in Salt Lake City and uh, Word came. I happened to be, um, it was June 26th, I happened to be the celebrant for the General Convention Eucharist that day on which Gay Jennings, the president of the House of Deputies, was preaching. And I'll never forget, uh, you know, walking into the, to the huge, we wouldn't be able to do it right now, but to the huge um, kind of airplane hangar facility um, to celebrate the Eucharist for the General Convention for the Episcopal Church. And there was just such an air of celebration. And um, 
a, a little bit of relief. I mean, they're all the uh, LGBTQ people I know have been working on this for 30, 40 years, a lifetime. So um, it, was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And I would say for me personally, it, it became the nudge to get married legally. I had been with my partner at that time of 28 years, for 28 years, and uh, we weren't married legally. We were committed to one another. We were loyal. We were faithful. Uh, it's a long story, but um, so to me personally, it, it, um, it was a prompt, as it were. Um, I think for the nation, uh, it, it was empowering for anyone who um, considers or focuses on human rights at all. And it, you know, in, in some ways it was a surprise uh, be, because, you know, at the same time there were uh, laws and cases that um, the Supreme Court wasn't paying attention to or did not go in favor of. Uh, and I am um, always concerned, especially now for our brothers and sisters, people of color, um, in this time of um, real racial injustice uh, that we all need to fight for out of solidarity. Yes. Um, so there was a sense of solidarity as well. Um, so I think it was a step in the right direction for the country and, uh, and for the world. Okay, and, um, and the church? And the church. Uh, the church, I mean, as I say, we were in general convention, so we hadn't quite, uh, it, it, it meant, um, it, it was interesting because in the 1979 prayer book, um, there are, uh, there are rubrics, you know, they used to be written in red, but there are italic instructions. And in the, in the 1979 prayer book in the service of marriage, you know, one rubric says that marriage is between a man and a woman. And another rubric says that the, that the person celebrating the marriage, the officiant, has to abide by the laws of the state because in the civil realm, marriage is regulated by the state. So up to that ruling, um, if you were an Episcopal priest and you were in the state of Massachusetts, which already allowed same gender marriages, you had to break one rubric in order to obey the other. And this kind of flipped it. It made it as a civil agreement, as a civil contract, marriage equality made it legal throughout the country. Now, um, people would have to obey the one rubric at the expense of the other. Uh, and I don't think the church has um, probably not crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, but it, it did flip the, the issue for many, um, particularly scholars of canon. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the bigger picture is 
we're a relational church. The people are the body of Christ. Uh, it was a huge step forward, and we'll work out the details as we live into that wonderful future. Yes. Thank you. Yes, I think um, I'm glad you brought that up because one of my questions was going to be about uh, marriage in the prayer book as it stands, the 1979 prayer book. And I know that there is um, the, the commission on liturgy and music, uh, they are beginning to do that work on a revision of the prayer book. So um, I wanted to find out a little bit more about what you thought about language. And I think that tie with the state is a carryover from England. It is our history of how the government is tied in with the church. And so that coupling is there and has been, um, it's been a challenge as you have noted. It has Horace and you know, um, right from the beginning, I mean, I've, I've been ordained 39 years now, close to 40. Um, and right from the beginning, marriage, the one of the seven sacraments that, and we're a sacramental church, was, was the one that was kind of uh, contaminated is a, a difficult word to use. But what I mean by that is that um, there was an unholy uh, intersection of church and state, whereby the state basically allowed ordained ministers of any legitimate denomination to perform marriages. So it meant that, in a sense, the church was co-opted by the state, and the priests and deacons who performed marriages were acting as justices of the peace or clerks of the court. And I always felt uneasy about that. Um, and so I think we may be in the church in a period of trying to separate that out and saying, you know what, marriage is a sacrament. So I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want people to misunderstand me here, but I learned long ago, you can't control what people are going to hear, what people are going to think as a result of what you say. So I'll try to speak carefully, but I think we're, I think we're going to, we may be on the road to separating that out and saying, you know, um, in terms of satisfying the legal, civil aspects of marriage, people, you got to go to a clerk of the court anyway and mm -hmm. get your marriage license. Yes. And that'll be civil marriage. Yeah. And then if you want to engage the sacrament of the church, come and we will bless it in a marriage service that is 100% sacramental. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the details are going to look like, but that makes more sense to me. I mean, when we do any other sacrament, when we do baptism, we don't send our people down to the county court to get a baptismal certificate. You know, we don't, we don't send them down to the county court to get confirmation certificates for our young people. Marriage is the only one of the sacraments that we have this entwining of church and state. And I think, I think probably we're going to separate that out and it'll be to the health and benefit of all concerned. Yes. Oh, thank you. I, every time I do a wedding, I always introduce myself. I'm Horace Griffin, Associate Priest for Pastoral Care and Community Ministries at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And I then go on to pronounce this couple um, in the authority that's been given to me by the state of Georgia. And it's the only place in our government where I have civil authority 
And so you are absolutely right. And it's interesting how that has lasted for all these years and we have not had that decoupling. But uh, perhaps now we're at a point where we will move more in that direction because there were many um, issues that came up uh, during this time. And I let the couple know um, whether it's a heterosexual couple or a couple between a man and woman or uh, two women or two men, that we have a wonderful ceremony, but until I sign that legal document, it does not change their status. That's right. So it really makes sense to, to move in that direction. That's uh, right. Would you like to say other things, uh, anything else about other liturgical materials in our church that maybe uh, have well, not provided? Sure. I, I, I mean, there is, I think I might even have it in my bookcase here. But um, there is a wonderful uh, book called I Will Bless You and You Will Be a Blessing. And um, it, it came out in 2015, and it, uh, it has some resources for um, blessing same-sex relationships. Uh, uh, and uh, the work that was put into this by the, by the task force prior to 2015 and by the Standing Commission on Liturgy and Music was phenomenal. I mean, they re it, it, it's the kind of work that you, you sort of understand if we paid that kind of attention to every single sacrament or service that the church engages, it would just be heaven. I mean, they did theological research, liturgical research, pastoral research, um, economic research. I mean, it, it, you know, they had five or six different uh, aspects of what it would mean in a community to bless same gender relationships and uh, including what I've always said is it's, it's time the church recognized gay and lesbian people as the gift they are to the church. And it's time that the church welcomed that gift and celebrated that gift, not simply in terms of diversity, but for you know, the raw material that, that we are uh, contributing to the church. So um, yeah, there's, there, there are, it, it, what was interesting is when we first, as a church, in 2015, passed for, I, I believe we said, provisional use or transitional. There was a word, you know, we're always into semantics, um, <laughs> theology by semantics. Uh, so there was a particular word used, but it, the, the service was passed for provisional use, and there were heterosexual couples who wanted to use the service and they couldn't because that's not what it was for originally from between 2015 and 2018 heterosexual couples were not allowed to use it now now those liturgies are open to everybody and a kind of accredited they're um you know they're given we're, we're given permission to use them for um any any couple who wishes to use those liturgies Thank you. I remember the wonderful moment when not only the Supreme Court ruled, but when we voted as a, a church to uh, in both houses, uh, houses of bishops and the House of De House of Deputies and House of Bishops, to pass on uh, same-sex blessing. And the wonderful work 
that the Commission on Liturgy and Music, led by the Reverend Dr. Ruth Ellis Myers. And I remember in the prayers of the people giving thanks and thanksgiving for that wonderful work that you mentioned. They did just focus groups and over years and meetings and carefully crafted with language and with sensitivity uh, this work. So it was just phenomenal, the work they did. So, so I agree with you. Um, Bishop Glasspool, would you just say a little bit um, about your uh, family? Your father was an Episcopal priest. And was. Uh, what was it like growing up as a PK? <laughs> well, uh, what's, what's, um, what I think people take note of, and my, my father was a priest here in the Diocese of New York, so in some respect, I've sort of come back to where my original roots were. Um, my father was uh, very conservative, so growing up, he didn't believe in women's ordination. He was totally against it. And, uh, and so that provided a rather challenging childhood. It's not that I was born thinking I was going to be a priest, but when I came of age and, and was beginning to discern what it was God was calling me to do or to be as a person, um, you know, I guess I was in college at the time and when I was discerning my vocation and I knew I loved the church and I had uh, some skills at public speaking and I was a resident advisor at, in college. So I had some counseling skills and, and I loved liturgy and, um, and, and I was beginning to discern that maybe God was calling me to be a priest. And this was in the early seventies. I mean, the Philadelphia 11 hadn't even been ordained yet. And when they were, in July of 1974, that became a model for something that was possible that before that time had not been possible uh, in, in my world, uh, in, in the world of the Episcopal Church. And it was controversial still. So um, it, was, it was difficult. We, we got through those years, but, um, uh, you know, being a PK, a priest's kid or a preacher's kid, um, and I also grew up in a, in a predominantly Roman Catholic neighborhood, so it was a bit of an anomaly for all my neighborhood friends. Um, it was, it had its challenges and sometimes it had its advantages. Okay, thank you. Um, and thank you for saying the Diocese of New York. I think I said Central New York in the beginning, which is another good diocese, but Diocese of New York, which uh, is a diocese in which where I served for years when I was on the faculty at General Theological Seminary. Oh, wonderful. So I know that diocese very well. Yeah. Uh, when did you know you were a lesbian? And part of the formation of yeah, coming yeah. to terms with what you wanted, you felt God calling you to do as far as ministry or vocation, but also there was some, uh, I guess, awakening about who you were uh, yeah. in your orientation. And you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, um, it's a question that I think that I wonder if the challenge is different for young people today. 
I mean, I was born in 1954, so I grew up, you know, I'm a baby boomer. I grew up in the 60s, and, uh, you know, it wasn't at all cool to be homosexual. I mean, that's what, that's what we were called. We were homosexuals, and it was a very sort of scientific term, and up until 1974, you know, it was considered an abnormality. It was not, it was not normal. And so, um, you know, I, it, we used to joke, you know, in the, in the very early days of what I knew as the gay and lesbian community, we used to joke about asking our brothers and sisters, well, when did you know that you were a heterosexual? I mean, which opens the question at least to say, how does one discover one's sexuality? I, you know, I think today it's, it's, a, it's a more complicated still. It's like there's gender identity and sexual identity and all different kinds of identities. So, but for, for me, it was like we were, I was born into a heterosexual world. I mean, the assumption was that you were heterosexual. So, for a little girl growing up in Goshen, New York, the assumption was that I would be dating and that I would be attracted to the male persuasion. And when I sort of was discovering that I had different feelings for even girls and uh, more than kind of crushes and when in college I, um, you know, I, I, I actually, I mean, truth be told, I started having erotic dreams about women. And I didn't will that. I didn't want that. In fact, I would sort of wake myself up in the middle of the night and say, glass pool, you pervert. What, what's wrong with you? So it was very challenging. Um, and you know, I had to come to terms with it. And one of the ways in which I came to terms with my own sexuality was discerning that it was about love and that God is love. And God, I, and I mean, I, I wept because at first I thought, you know, does God not like me? Does God not love me? And or does God love me? And this is part of God and God's call and, and it's okay. And I had to work through all that, which I generally did um, through college. But in the early days of discerning a vocation to ordained ministry, it was kind of a mixed bag because the church wasn't there. And I knew that there were gay people in the church but it's a whole long history to how the church came out and was able to be the inclusive community that we've tried and always said we are from the get-go. So um, I think the, the answer to the original question was I kind of discerned both my vocation to ordained ministry and the fact that I identified as a lesbian 
in college. And then, you know, the rest, the, the rest of my life up until now, I've been trying to integrate all of the different parts of who I am as I get broken and mended and my heart breaks again and, and we have healing and that kind of cycle of growth uh, and formation that I believe for everyone uh, in different ways is a lifelong endeavor as we, um, as we grow, hopefully, towards God. Very good. So you came into the church and looked toward ordained ministry into the priesthood at the same time knowing that you were a lesbian and a church that was not as open as it is today. So were there things that you got involved in to educate, to move the church along, or were you at a different place during that, those early years? Well, um, you know, again, I was out, you know, I was public about my sexuality in seminary. And then when I took my first job as assistant to the rector at St. Paul's Church in Chestnut Hill, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, without me doing anything, I suddenly discovered that I was back in the closet because the people of that church did not want to have that conversation. I had been hired by the rector, and I think there were suspicions, but it was, we didn't talk about it. It was just something we didn't talk about. And, and so I, you know, again, I, it wasn't that I wanted to be in the closet. It's that the closet is sometimes a place where people put you. Um, and, and what I, what I worked out then is, I will talk about my sexuality if you ask me about my sexuality. If, if you don't, I'm not gonna talk about it. I don't wanna, it wasn't my goal to put anybody on the spot. Um, I wanted to be a priest and I wanted to be the best priest I possibly could be. And, and my vocation had to do with preaching and teaching and engaging with the confirmation class and sharing the good news of the gospel. And that's what I focused on. In the same way, you know, all of society and culture was moving through the 80s with lots of protests and, uh, you know, the issue was growing as a political issue and, and uh, you know, we could go through all the history of that, but um, that's what I've been living through was just this gradual blossoming uh, of things for me, for my life. Yes. And so we, you and I are, are uh, seasoned in years enough that we can see this evolution of when it was, when there were all these, the church fights, the resources, the education that happened, the uh, coming out, the diocesan conventions where, where this, be, this was part of the uh, resolutions 
and um, people responded going to the mic. And then we had a lot of the ordination. And by the time I was ordained in 2005, I was ordained openly gay in the Diocese of Chicago. But uh, how, when you were ordained, were you ordained as that was, as you said, not, that was not discussed at that point? Well, um, I was ordained to the diaconate on June 13th, uh, 1981. And I was ordained at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine by Paul Moore. And uh, he had already ordained Ellen Barrett, who was actually an open lesbian, uh, before there was any big sort of church fight around Jack Spong and, uh, and all that history. And she became our first openly uh, lesbian or gay person. Ellen Marie, Barrett. Ellen Marie Barrett yes. became our first in the Diocese of New York. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. Yep. Which is very interesting that there was not a lot of, as you say, brouhaha around her ordination, which you would have thought that it, it came out later, with, particularly with Bishop Robinson, but any priest could, you know, potentially become a bishop. So, but it was interesting how there was a different response from what I know of that. Yeah, and, and you know, I don't want to be too cynical about this, but women's ordination was still a new thing. So it's almost as if because Ellen was a woman, she was dismissed. It, it, she wasn't threatening the way oh. gay men were. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Uh, so I, you know, again, one with hindsight, one can analyze it anyway. But I, I, I wasn't, I didn't make a big thing out of my sexuality, but I certainly told Paul Moore. Um, I, I was certainly honest through the process. It's just that, you know, in the early 80s, nobody in the church wanted to talk about it. So unless it was to make a big political issue out of it, which, you know, uh, by the time I was consecrated bishop, we'd been talking for 30 years about whether or not we were going to make it legal. Of course, we had already even consecrated gay bishops before Gene Robinson. It's just, it was the, it was the kind of, are we going to be open about it? Are we going to be honest about it? Are we going to be transparent? Are we going to, uh, you know, are we going to just, come on, people, um, here's the reality that we're already living. So um, let's, let's honor this and honor the people and bless their relationships and honor the gifts that are so freely and sometimes uh, sacrificially given, uh, not only to the church, but to the world. Yes. Tell us about your beloved, your spouse. Oh, Becky. Yeah. Um, Becky, uh, my, my spouse of now over 30 years, um, uh, Becky Sander is, has a PhD in social work, um, in community organization and management 
and uh, she works a lot with um, uh, anti-racist stuff and uh, is, is very committed to um, uh, restorative justice, which is uh, a way of talking about the community. It's very close, I think, to what we do in the church, or it should be thematically. It's, it's, it's like what you do to make justice to restore right relationship in the community. Uh, how do you make reparations? How do you repair the community? How, how do you confess the evil and the sin uh, in this case of racism and not truly respecting the dignity of every human being? So she's... Um, she had a wonderful job in California. She was the director of um, field education at Cal State Long Beach, which was an ideal job for her. She supervised like 550 people. And here she's, she's in New York. She's uh, a very part-time adjunct faculty member at the Silberman School of Social Work, which is part of Hunter College. Oh. And, uh, and she's very active in some of the organizations uh, that social workers think highly of and act through. So she's, she's wonderful. She's just been a, a wonderful spouse for lo these many years. And I'm deeply grateful that she's been willing to be my partner in life. Oh, it's wonderful. How did you all meet? Well, when I was rector of St. Luke's and St. Margaret's in the Alston section of Boston, the Alston Brighton section. Becky was actually doing a, a joint degree at BU School of Theology and BU School of Social Work. You could get an MTS, a Master of Theological Studies, and an MSW, Master of Social Work, a dual degree program. And um, I became <laughs> one of her projects. Uh, as she interviewed um, female ministers in the greater Boston area. And that's how we met. She came to interview me for a class she was taking with Elizabeth Bettenhausen on, uh, in, in theology at BU School of Theology. Yes. My alma mater. Yeah, all that's right. Her. I was on the faculty when I was a student. So. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful professor. Yeah. Yes. I can't believe you're that old. I think I'm a little older than you, but well, I'm. I'm I'll be you look young. Well, praise God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of young, what would you say to young LGBTQ folks? Well, um, make the most of it. Know that you are a gift to the church and to the world. Um, if you're having difficulty with uh, discerning your identity, I would say one of the best movements we've had um, was It Gets Better. And, I, and uh, I would say that to anyone having difficulty, it gets better. You're not alone. You know, um, it was one of the stages I went through. I thought I was the only one, you know. <laughs> it's laughable to think about now, but, but you, we, 
And here we are uh, dealing with this pandemic and dealing with racial issues and uh, dealing with economic issues. And we're, we're kind of isolated. We're hopefully not, uh, not too isolated, but, but don't get isolated. You know, reach out and ask for help if you need it. But also you all have great ideas and you all are into community and uh, building communities. So don't forget to teach us older folks uh, and, and to engage with us because I just thrive on the energy that I, that I see and, and hear and feel from younger people growing up in an entirely different world than the one in which, um, which I grew up and, and maybe you too, Horace, I don't know. Absolutely, I uh, grew up in that environment and it, it is uh, largely generational. Uh, it's exciting to see what young people have for them, even though we still have a long way to go. Uh, but, but we can celebrate those victories as we are doing this morning. Just a couple more questions, and one is um, related to that. Where do you think we are as an Episcopal church and the Anglican communion on issues of uh, LGBTQ uh, today yeah. and marriage equality? Well, you know, um, it's a difficult question to answer because clearly there are more immediate and basic needs in the world right now. Um, and it, that doesn't mean that it's not important, that LGBTQ issues aren't important, they are because they're part and parcel of the whole picture. Um, we're, we're in a pandemic and uh, I worry about, you know, the Diocese of New York has a companion relationship with the Diocese of Central Tanganyika. Um, and, you know, homosexuality is against the law in Central Tanganyika, but it's not something I'd want to you know, I, I, it was fine for me to be there, uh, uh, and I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to make an issue out of it when they're fighting this pandemic, or when they don't, when there are basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter, not to mention health care uh, for women and children in particular that are more pressing. Um, so, so it's hard. Um, I, I think the Episcopal Church. I'm proud to be an Episcopalian. I think, I think we, um, maybe people could accuse us of airing our dirty laundry in public, but I, but I think we, I think we're determined to, to talk and debate and, um, and uh, I, you know, most recently, I've just been so proud of our, of the Episcopal Church being a leader in so many ways, uh, including keeping our people safe during the pandemic, including showing up at vigils and for Juneteenth celebrations and to speak about racial injustice and to uh, work towards, and to be in solidarity, to be, you know, not just allies, but accomplices, advocates, or racial justice and um, 
And I think the Episcopal Church does that well. And I, I actually think in terms of the Anglican Union, we'll see. I mean, Lambeth's been postponed at least a year. I wouldn't be surprised if it were postponed another year. But I think in terms of education and formation, um, we're not asking, we the Episcopal Church, we're not asking for Nigeria, for example, to pass marriage equality. We're not asking for that. We're just asking for the same respect that we wish to offer and expect to have for our other churches in the Anglican Communion. And, and that's where I feel like we can come together at the same table and talk about the things that, um, that are issues for all of us. Okay. It's kind of, uh, I guess, ties into my last question of where do we go from here? Yeah. Maybe. Well, uh, hopefully we're learning from uh, having to become experts on Zoom and uh, remote worship and all that. I really hope we're learning. And I did not say jokingly that it's a moment for evangelism. In fact, I use what Phyllis Tribble called, you know, I think she based it on Mark Dyer's observation that every 500 years, the church has a giant garage sale. And, and uh, we get rid of all the stuff that really was sort of crusty and weighing us down in a bureaucracy. And, we, and, and that opens us up to a whole new way of doing things. And it doesn't mean that we don't stay centered for example, in our core values, in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, whom we follow in this Jesus movement, it, what it does mean is that stuff like our, our buildings, we say in the Diocese of New York, and I'm sure in other dioceses, we didn't close the church for the pandemic. The church remained open. We did close the church buildings, and, and, and that provided us the freedom and the opportunity to ask, how are we using our church buildings for God's mission? And what does that look like in the future as we can uh, have Zoom worship and online services? Uh, and can we do both? And, and what will that future look like as we had congregations reporting to us that people from all over the world are tuning in? to their online services. And, and, and it really is a form of evangelism. While the pandemic, uh, for anybody who's willing to learn, teaches us that, you know what? Gosh, friends, no matter how much we believe in um, technology, whether it is electronic technology or medical technology, we human beings are not ultimately in control. We're not, you know, God is. And I, you know, somehow this whole thing, this whole pandemic and um, racial injustice and economic upheaval is making that clearer and clearer to any who would listen and would have their heart and mind and ears be opened to the presence of our loving and gracious God. Amen. Bishop Glasspool, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I would like to say that 
the day that you were consecrated as bishop of our church was one of the great moments of the Episcopal Church. And, and I was personally moved and you have inspired just thousands and upon millions across the world for your witness. So thank you for being a witness. Bless you, Horace. And well, I, I mean that and blessings to you and Becky on your marriage as we celebrate this uh, really momentous uh, weekend of marriage equality. Yeah. So, Thank you so much and, and love and peace and joy to you and, and to all the good people of St. Luke's. Bless you. Thank you very much.